0: This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Welcome. I'm Anne Mossop from the Sydney Opera House. Welcome to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas for 2016. This is our very first session um, of the day and of the festival. So, I'd like to... (laughs) I'd like to acknowledge that we meet on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Today, we have the great pleasure of the company of George Packer, uh, an extraordinary writer and thinker. Um, We're going to be talking about America coming apart, how decades of social, political, and economic change have frayed the social fabric of America, what this means for our idea of America and The American Dream. George is a staff writer for The New Yorker, the author of two novels, The Play, Betrayed, and several incredibly important non-fiction books. The Assassin's Gate, published in uh, 2005, one of the most important books about Iraq, America and Iraq, written early in uh, the Iraqi, um, the presence of America in Iraq, and The Unwinding, 30 Years of America's Decline, which is the background for his talk today. Here in Australia, in some ways, we're quite close to America. Sometimes it almost seems like we pay more attention to their elections. They're a bit more dramatic, especially these days. We certainly watch a lot more of their movies, their television. But we're also very far apart in that we have a particular picture of America which is limited to this public view. And we're talking about a country that is larger in scope and diversity than that kind of public reality, uh, the public presentation can tell us. Today at the festival, we're finding out a lot more about America here and now, but also in later sessions on US politics and why Black Lives Matter later this afternoon. If we're thinking about the US in a very snapshot way, say over the last decade, we think Hurricane Katrina, technological revolution, financial crisis, housing bubble, and the present dramatically strange era in American politics. In the unwinding, George Packer has done an extraordinary piece of work by going back to the roots of all of these phenomena and looking over 30 years at the patterns and causes that underlie some of these things. The complex links between de inequality, corrupted politics, and the way that that has fractured social cohesion and really destroyed aspects of of what we think of as American culture. This doesn't mean that The Unwinding is a depressing book to read. It's leavened by the stories of fascinating people, um, and it's nevertheless in spite of the sense of life and vitality. It's a story about America coming apart in a way that from the outside we couldn't actually see without the acute eye and the analysis of someone like George. So please join me in welcoming him to the stage, George Packer.
1: Thank you, Anne. You've been uh, wonderful to me and my family ever since we arrived in Sydney. And my only regret is that we have to leave tomorrow and go back to our normal American lives because this is really a wonderful place. Uh, thank you all for, for coming this morning. Um, and what I'll try to do is explain what seems bizarre and inexplicable, which is to say um, my country in the year 2016. <laughs> so. 2008 was a historic year in America. Obviously, first of all, for the, the, the campaign and election of Barack Obama, but also the collapse of industries like the car industry, banks, uh, investment houses, the housing market, a sense that after 30 years of, of pro-market politics and economics, uh, the, the foundations were cracking. And, and old pillars of our society were collapsing. And what I decided to do after that year was to go around the country, to leave my own little bubble in New York and find out what was going on and what people were saying and living like. And that journey became the reporting for The Unwinding. I went to the old, hollowed-out industrial city of Youngstown, Ohio. I went to the... uh, sort of crazed sunbelt boom bust mentality of Tampa, Florida, where the housing bust had been at its most dramatic. I went to Silicon Valley, where uh, nothing seemed to be going wrong even while everything was going wrong in the rest of the country. I went to Washington, uh, where uh, politicians um, seemed to be arguing about things that had no connection to what their constituents cared about And I went to rural North Carolina, um, where the very fabric of life in Western North Carolina, uh, which had been underpinned by three industries, furniture making, textiles, and tobacco, uh, had almost overnight disappeared. Now, Anne mentioned some of the long-term trends that reached a kind of crescendo in 2008 and after. Deindustrialization, the information revolution, political polarization of the country into incredibly rigid divisions of red and blue, uh, the drowning of the business of government in uh, big money, mostly corporate money, which is legal bribery, wage stagnation over several decades so that the middle class was seeing its real wages decline uh, which is an unprecedented turn uh, in american history since the 70s and with that growing inequality where uh some classes of americans were doing unthinkably well and living unthinkably well uh, with innovations like google and uh, netflix and Lipitor, and uh, Overnight Delivery, and Amazon, and you name it, uh, and others were rather quietly sinking. Um, To me, that was the trend of all trends. And also, in parts of the country, the arrival of immigrants, including non-white immigrants, uh, into communities that had never experienced immigration before. Since 1965, there's been an enormous surge of immigration in the US. All of those trends were known, but what effect were they having? What was the the way in which they were um, pressuring the lives of ordinary people? So one of the people I spent the most time with when I was working on The Unwinding uh, was a guy named Dean Price who lived in rural North Carolina, grew up there, was a son of the soil, grew up on a tobacco farm. His father was a Bible Belt, fire and brimstone preacher, and also an OxyContin addict, which is a twist that to me was representative of something, some, some ill that was infecting this community, a community that Sarah Palin once called the real America, the heart of America. Well, that is the way it's often talked about by some politicians. But it turned out that the real America, because of the uh, overnight departure of tobacco, textiles, and furniture, looked more and more like inner city America, like the, the slums of our big cities with intergenerational poverty, low uh, education standards, drug use, um, criminal activity, women raising children without men around, all the things that we associate with the cities had come to the country, had come to the real America. And that was the context for Dean Price's life. He came of age in the last years of the good times, when the industries were still there and paid a good wage, and had to make his way through their collapse. And the way he did that was... I think a quintessentially American way, he decided to become an entrepreneur. He would go to work for himself. He would start his own business, which is a dream that in his mind came from the 18th century. To him, the original entrepreneurs were the farmers who settled and, and built uh, the colonies before the revolution. He was following in their footsteps. And Dean has a vivid and quite passionate attachment to the traditions. Of, uh, of the old country. First, he opened a chain of uh, truck stops, gas stations, fast food restaurants, convenience stores. For a while, he did well. But then he came under pressure from both the fall of housing uh, values and the arrival of Walmart and other superstores and of discount gas chains. In other words, big oil and big commerce came to his little county of Rockingham in North Carolina and threatened to put him out of business. So he he began to think of a different way, a way that might uh, be more viable, more sustainable, which is a word that he began to use on his own without any uh, eco-friendly evangelists in the neighborhood telling him to think that way. He sort of arrived at an idea of the green economy by himself with the help of his surfing the internet. His big idea was biodiesel, which meant planting on the old fallow tobacco fields, which were empty, planting um, canola, planting crops that could be turned into the oil that provides the basis for uh, biofuels. And using that in his own truck stop so that he would be, as he put it, the first farm-to-pump truck stop in America. America's first biodiesel truck stop. That's the sign I saw uh, that announced itself next to an, an American flag about the size of, twice the size of that screen, um, over Red Birch uh, truck stop, which was Dean's stop, just over the state line in Virginia the day I went to see him. Dean um, is, a, is, a, is a, a kind of mix of the snake oil salesman and the visionary, which, again, is something I associate with almost a Mark Twain kind of um, character that we find in American history. And he evangelized biodiesel all over North Carolina. I'm going to read a, a short passage from the book that captures him just as he's realizing that the old imported oil, competing with Walmart model of his business was was crushing him and was also laying waste to his community because all the little shops and stores in all the little towns around Rockingham County had closed down because everyone was doing their shopping up on the highway in the chains in Walmart um, and at, at the other big at Lowe's at the big superstores so. This is his sort of moment of epiphany. He was seeing beyond the surfaces of the land to its hidden truths. Some nights he sat up late on his front porch with a glass of Jack and listened to the trucks heading south on 220, carrying crates of live chickens to the slaughterhouses, always under cover of darkness, like a vast and shameful trafficking. Chickens pumped full of hormones, that left them too big to walk. And he thought how these same chickens might return from their destination as pieces of meat to Dean's floodlit Bojangles restaurant up the hill from his house. And that meat would be drowned in the bubbling fryers by employees whose hatred of the job would leak into the cooked food. And that food would be served up and eaten by customers who would grow obese and end up in the hospital in Greensboro with diabetes or heart failure, a burden to the public. And later, Dean would see them riding around the Maydan Walmart in electric carts because they were too heavy to walk the aisles of the supercenter, just like hormone-fed chickens. <laughs> and that was truly the vision of Dean Price. And for him if you could only grow locally and buy and sell locally and make things again, because America no longer made things, you could restore the physical and civic health to his community. And that's the kind of idea that you find when you wander off the beaten track uh, and start knocking on doors in the -the out-of-the-way places in America. I found three things almost universally in these communities of decline. One was the idea that their children would have it worse than they had it, which is a reversal of what we call the American dream. Two, there was no more middle class there. I heard that constantly. There were now a few people who were wealthy and more who were getting poorer. And third, the idea that the game was rigged on behalf of powerful, well-connected people, whether in business or in government, who were washing each other's hands and had no interest in the lives of the people who were not wealthy and well-connected. This kind of marked, I began to think, the end of something that I had grown up with. Uh, and and I, ca- I think of it as, as a social contract, even though it's not written down anywhere, a contract among Americans that, although by no means a perfect image of a, of a society we all want, nonetheless made a deal that if you played your part by working and by raising your family, you would have a, not just a decent life, but a place at the table. And more and more, what I found were people who felt they had no place at the table. They were on their own. And in many cases, they were living physically alone. Dean Price was raising uh, his teenage son. He'd had uh, several marriages. Uh, He was not unusual in being uh, a kind of solitary person, figuring it out by himself. I didn't find the traditional pillars of support, whether from a government agency, a corporate job, a bank, a newspaper, a school, a church, a union, political parties. All of these institutional pillars of middle-class life in America seemed to have disappeared from places like Dean's uh, home region. And in that void, rather apocalyptic views were brewing and spreading. Um, in some cases, not necessarily Dean, although at times with Dean, but in, among other people I met, expectations that there, were, there was bound to be violence, that the, the social and economic decline couldn't continue for long without civil unrest, looting. Some people even spoke of martial law or even race wars. And it wasn't always easy to categorize these people I met politically, ideologically. We have this red-blue divide. It began in the year 2000 when the the newscasters put up a map of the the election between Bush and Gore. And for some reason, Gore was blue and Bush was red. And that fixed it in our heads that we were two countries. And in many ways, it was not wrong. But what I found in, when you got deep below the surface of people, when you got beyond their first three thoughts, which inevitably are clichés, and start hearing what people are truly thinking and feeling, they didn't fit the category so easily. I often found that there was a libertarianism combined with a strong resentment of Wall Street There was patriotism, but there was also isolationism, a desire to be rid of the world's problems. Um, There was certainly resentment among some of non-white Americans and of immigrants. There was some out and out racism, especially in the South. Dean Price said to me, if it weren't for racism, if Obama had been white, he would have won 80% of the vote in North Carolina. Uh, And he he would know because he knows his, his people. Um, there's certainly resentment and distrust toward government. But oddly enough, it's strongest in the very places where there's the most dependence on government. So the idea that we're all going it alone and cowboys on the frontier making our own ways is, is wrong. It's a myth. And the, the more that places like Rockingham County, North Carolina, depended on disability and welfare and food stamps, the more people felt uh, resentment of the government that was partly feeding them. Um, The the people I met were more individualistic than the Democratic Party and more anti-corporate than the Republican Party. Um, And above all, I'd say they were what you might call anti-globalist. This was not a word they used, wasn't a common term, but if you think about it, what they were really reacting against was the sense that their own control over their lives had slipped away and it had gone somewhere else, to Washington, to New York, but also to London, to Beijing uh, and places far afield. Um, In some ways, there was a paradox or at least a, a problem in the status of the people I was talking to, because they weren't all, but many of them were what we call the white working class, which to me is simply descriptive. It tells you what color they are, and it tells you what their social class is. But in this phrase, there is a a little tension, because on the one hand, it contains a privilege, being white. On the other, it contains a disadvantage, being working class and sinking because the working class is no longer the steadily employed blue-collar factory worker. The working class is the part-time Walmart store greeter who makes 9 or $10 an hour. Um, so that, that social identity uh, was fraught and is fraught. But above all, they no longer felt like they were the center of the country. These were the people who had been told and grown up thinking they were the heart of America, that they were its soldiers, its patriots, its workers, its taxpayers, uh, the people who kept the country going when others uh, were either too privileged or too lazy or whatever the word might be to, to turn the gears. And they were no longer in that place and they knew it. So by contrast, I spent some time in Silicon Valley which you could call you know, the new center uh, of at least an American dream. It's, it's actually where I grew up, except when I was growing up, no one used the phrase Silicon Valley, and, and true natives like me hate the phrase because it, it, it attaches a, uh, a, an element or an entity to what was the Santa Clara Valley. And it also gives it a slant that we don't like. It was a middle-class place. They were really good public schools because back then, Californians paid for good public schools. I went to them. But today, it is a place of extremes, of great wealth, uh, and all the self-isolation and, and, uh, re- and se- secession that comes with great wealth, and also of poverty. Uh, and people who can't afford the, the housing prices and the rents. Um, people, it's dominated by people who kind of experience all the advantages of globalization. The ethnic food, the um, chance to travel, the chance to move their money around the world and find the best investments. Um, cheap childcare, cheap housework, cheap garden work. So for people in Silicon Valley, and I'm using them as a, a kind of stand-in for a whole class, which the, the social scientist Charles Murray calls the new upper class, a cosmopolitan class that feels in some ways more connected to London or even Sydney than to the people who live a mile away in a different community. Um, in the Silicon Valley, it's extreme. The, the tech wealth... And the sense of possibility in technology is so inflated that there is a a kind of splendid isolation at work without even a sense that we are an unequal, a more and more unequal country. But this new upper class is anxious. It's both complacent and anxious. Um, It is constantly afraid that its children are going to fall down into the abyss of the middle class or the former middle class and there seems to be no bottom to that fall. So these parents are willing to spend thousands of dollars to prep their children for the gifted and talented tests, which will get them into the best classes in uh, pre-kindergarten. I am not kidding. (laughs) Or if they can afford it into the best private schools. Uh, There's about six universities that are considered even thinkable. Uh, for some of these families. I know them, believe me, uh, as Donald Trump would say. Um, <clears throat> so there's a kind of a mix of uh, of, of anxiety and, and self-satisfaction. Uh, and there, the scramble, the sense of a few privileged places that have to be held on to for dear life is so great that there are divisions within this class. For example, between people like me and financial professionals. We, the financial professionals who I went to high school with and who took a different path um, despise me for my choices and I resent them for making a lot more money than I do. Um, but for people like Dean Price and the people who live where he lives, there is essentially just contempt and a sense that they have it coming because they just weren't good enough. They didn't go to school long enough. They didn't go to the right schools. They didn't work hard enough. They didn't make the right choices for their children. They shouldn't have gotten divorced. They shouldn't have had so many children. This is what we call the meritocracy, the idea that essentially, those who rise to the top deserve it. It's not because of where they're born. It's because of their character and their talent. Uh, There's a little bit of truth to the idea of a meritocracy. There's also a great deal, I think, of falseness. Barack Obama came into office thinking he would somehow heal these divisions and raise the tone of politics and end the red-blue divide uh, and end the black-white divide and end the rich-poor divide. Lincoln was his model. Uh, The high-mindedness, the dignity, the philosophical habits of thought. He wasn't successful. Blinken uh, was not successful either, even though he won the Civil War. Um, and it was kind of a weakness of his. I think it was Obama's vanity. I, I respect him tremendously, but this is his vain spot, the idea that he could raise us up, that, and that he alone could raise us up, and he didn't do it. So in his final year, he's been giving a series of speeches and they're well worth reading because they're kind of an attempt, I think, to leave. He hasn't said this, but I sense that he's trying to leave a a final testament, a farewell to the country, urging us to be more rational, more tolerant, more compromising, more grown up in a word, more like him. Uh, And to, to articulate an identity that is truly American and that ends this pitting of group against group. Um, the, the, the essential work of art of the Obama years has been the musical Hamilton, which the Obamas both love and have seen several times. And the significance of Hamilton is that a cast of non-white actors has taken the story of the country's founding and made it the story of our time and of them and their background, and in a sense, you couldn't ask for a more dramatic incarnation of Obama's view, Obama's vision of America, which is that the uh, the ideals of the country apply to all of us. So this is the landscape on which the 2016 election is being played out. It's striking to me that it's happening not during the Great Recession when the people I was interviewing were expecting uh, civil disturbance and martial law, but after many years of what is called by economists an economic recovery. It's not happening while scores of Americans are being killed every week in Iraq and Afghanistan, but after those wars have dropped off the front pages and in some ways out of our minds altogether altogether. But what this means to me is that Trump has been a long time coming. He was partly created out of the laboratory of conservative politics and Fox News. uh, And in some ways, their own Frankenstein has turned on them. (laughs) But Sarah Palin, remember her... was an early warning indicator. She was the John the Baptist to Trump's (laughs) Christ. Um, Not just accepted, but celebrated for having no expertise, no credentials, (laughs) and for being, uh, for for her utter disdain for politicians, for elites, for anyone who thought that they had a certain professional claim to lead. But it was also, he was also created, I would argue, in the empty main streets of Dean Price's Rockingham County, where he's quite popular, as you might imagine. The Republican Party has imploded uh, because the, a gap between what its elites and leaders believed and did and what the base of the party believed and wanted and did Uh, had been growing for a long time and suddenly it yawned wide open. And those elites and leaders proved to be utterly clueless about it, to be easily defeated, easily either co-opted or pushed aside. Some of the party's core dogmas, pro-market, pro-free trade, pro-immigration, pro-global, have been left behind on the garbage heap by Trump and by the base of the party, who turned out not to be devoted followers of the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I think the Republican Party will be years repairing the damage of Trump and figuring out what it stands for. Some more educated Republicans might form a third party or even become Democrats. They sound an awful lot like Democrats these days. Um, And if Trump loses, I still think the party that he has brought out of the shadows will remain. And in fact, in many ways, Trump is just an epiphenomenon. He's not nearly as important as these deeper forces that I've been trying to describe to you. He's also shown in how utterly out of touch people in my world, journalistic elites, political elites, were uh, with the rest of the country. They've utterly failed to see him coming, and they still don't understand his attractive power. They write him off every week, and he keeps coming back again like that Frankenstein. The Democratic Party seems relatively uh, united right now, but I think it, too, has deep divisions. They've been papered over by the campaign. But between black and white, between pro and anti-capitalist, between the new upper class and the sinking middle class, Uh, There are growing divisions, and they will continue to grow whatever happens in November. We no longer seem to know how to talk or listen to one another. We're more and more like a land of warring tribes, each with its own set of proprietary facts. Following our fellow tribesmen on Twitter, where the mob rules and the individual doesn't have to think, and where your own views are always amplified and seconded, and a complex thought is either impossible or unwise. But beneath this Baroque and at times grotesque spectacle of American politics this year, the uncomfortable truth for you as well is that we're actually becoming more like the rest of the world. Who is Donald Trump but the American Berlusconi? Who is Bernie Sanders but the American Jeremy Corbyn? We now have a populist nationalist right that flirts with racism, and we have a democratic socialist left. We haven't had those. Those are very familiar. They ought to be familiar, certainly to Europeans, maybe to Australians. So what we're seeing really in Trump is the malaise of a national identity that's coming under pressure from a cosmopolitan world. Okay, thanks.
0: So in a moment we're going to have time to take some questions from you Um, and there are microphones in the auditorium for you uh, to come and talk. Um, That's a very interesting note to end on, um, this tension between the I, American exceptionalism and the fact that these things which we look at as if they're quite exotic, the Trump phenomenon, are in fact part of a bigger picture. And I think certainly so many of those things that you discuss about the distrust of expertise, the distrust of any kind of political system are things that have very broad currency and, um, you know, and again we're going to be talking about in several different ways today and, and over the weekend. I want to start by asking you to take us, you know, you've built this incredible story about what is behind all of those things to arrive, you know, how we've arrived at today. I want to ask you to look into the future and uh, see whether you see that any any of these reversible. I mean, we've got a picture of very significant emic, economic and technological forces intersecting, of social uh, phenomena that are complex and and interlinked. All of these pieces that fit together into something that is, um, you know, producing a a whole group of people who are disenfranchised and resentful and see no possibility of, of the kind of the idea of progress, that idea of an American, future of possibility, do you think that 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 might change in the short or the long term?
1: I I can't imagine it changing in the short term. Um, It's just so, it's like trying to resist an ocean current. It's so big and deep. Um, And because of the structure of our society, we are in some ways relatively helpless. We don't. Uh, organized nationally very well. We don't any longer, there was a period when we did look to Washington for solutions, like the New Deal, big legislative initiatives. Hillary Clinton is promising some of them, but it's unlikely that she's gonna succeed. There's a lot of resistance and built into the Constitution is a structure of government that makes it very hard to get anything done on a national level. So these are national and global problems which Dean Price and others I met are trying to address in very local ways. And what I find attractive and still hopeful in the country is that those sparks have not been extinguished, they're they're there. If only the journalists will get out of the office and go and
0: find them, uh, which we, we don't do enough. Um, and the few remaining journalists in that old-fashioned in And that there's that problem, too. We, we,
1: are, we are a threatened class ourselves. Um, but how much can a man who's trying to make his own fortune and turn his rural community onto locally produced energy do about massive economic dislocation, massive new waves of immigration, for example, in the tobacco fields that still work... Who is picking the tobacco? I can tell you it's not white Americans. It's brown Latin Americans. Um, These are are threats to a sense, among some Americans, of their way of life. And whether it's out-and-out racist or simply an attachment to a certain kind of uh, community, that the communities don't have the glue any longer Mm. to hold together. And you can feel it. You can just see how... How, much, uh, how easily these ills uh, begin to pull people down. They don't have the, the resistance that they did. So it may well be that a whole generation is going to have to die off uh, because this is also a phenomenon more among older Americans than younger, just as Brexit was a phenomenon more among older British people than younger. Um, and it's a grim... diagnosis and prognosis but uh, there are Americans who will never be at ease in their own country again Mm. and um, my fear is that people from my world don't want to hear from them they don't find them attractive, they find them in some ways disturbing and even repellent and dismissible but this is a huge swath of America between the coasts and to consign them to being these inexcusable Trump supporters, many, many of them are, is to sort of replicate the, the same divisions that, uh, that I described that have, that have been besetting
0: us for so long. You talk about the social glue and in talking about Dean Price, about his solitude, and it's absolutely fascinating, um, looking at what you've written about in The Unwinding, uh, the sense of social isolation, that, that many of the people that you talk about, um, Tammy Thomas, Dean Price, are people for whom those traditional support structures of family have mostly or partially disappeared, that you have one working adult responsible for caring for a parent, children with... You know, without without a kind of a, a, a particularly stable family unit, the struggle of doing that, but also the, the the kind of the lack of social backup of any kind, and and even and in the, the lack
1: of a job that they can count on or, to or support I, that. any job that they exactly. can, you know,
0: in that social that rather fractured social unit, anybody having a job that they can count on, but even in the sense of someone like Peter Thiel, who is at the you know the the in Silicon Valley, again you know, a solitary person, a person, you know, like, like in a way that, you know, we see social trends, more and more people living alone, less and let you know, fewer and fewer yeah. people have fewer friends. The, 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 this is a phenomenon, this kind of loneliness and lack of, the lack of resilience that, that brings is something that cuts across those kinds of divisions. And someone yeah. like Dean Price in what was relatively recently a very connected community would have been in a very different situation if that social, those social links were stronger.
1: Yeah. I mean, there are statistics to back up what mm. you said. More Americans are living alone, certainly in this generation, than More in previous Australians, ones. More similarly. Yeah. I, I have to say there's a certain bias uh, in the work I do, because I need to write about people who will let me spend weeks with them. <laughs> In the case of Dean, I stayed in his house for many, many nights. Uh, There was no, for some reason, no door on the room I was in, which (laughs) worried me. And there was also an old 12-gauge shotgun propped up in the door, which I actually felt more, you know, was a sign that uh, he was going to take care of me if he needed to. Dean and I became very, very close during these weeks. But who would let a journalist into their life like that? I wouldn't. I no way. And I think most people who have children and a marriage that's intact um, and a fairly tight schedule, that is to say the new upper class who are doing well, those people are not going to let me (laughs) trail around for weeks and weeks and ask them a lot of very personal questions. Peter Thiel, uh, who does live alone in a gigantic mansion in uh, San Francisco's Marina District, I think he he wanted the publicity and he also found our conversations interesting and so he was an exception, a kind of odd bird at the top. But most... uh, There's still a lot of intact families and you're not going to get the kind of journalism... And it would have
0: been a completely different story. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the things that is very interesting for us sitting on the outside. You know, many of the same issues, you know, are people, things that people are thinking of in in relation to Australia, but again, very different social and economic and and cultural environment in so many ways. How much of what you found is visible to people from the outside? I mean, I I think it's it's very interesting when you look at the world how important the idea of America is. To to many people, the idea of somewhere that people can go and where you know, a positive idea of a meritocracy, that that whole upward trajectory of progress that you talked about. Is this visible to to other people? Is the erosion of it
2: visible?
1: It depends on where you go. It depends on who you talk to. And it really depends on how long you spend with them. If you go to San Francisco, Seattle, New York, Washington, um, Chicago, even Miami, you're not going to feel it because these are cities with enormous wealth, which are in some ways better places to live in than they've ever been. Crime is relatively low by American standards. In New York, it's rock bottom. Um, and uh, they're, they've become playgrounds for young people with time and means. I mean, in my neighborhood, we've got an artisanal mayonnaise shop, a high-end <laughs> cupcake shop, Uh, a high-end donut shop. It's like we've all become children and are spending our money on the things that, you know, except mayonnaise, not the mayonnaise. But yeah, they have to be organic. And in fact, one of the attributes of this new upper class is an obsession with food and everything about food and what they eat and where it comes from. And although this has many positive uh, effects, I find it weird and even sort of narcissistic, you're not going to really change what ails our society by eating heirloom tomatoes, you know. (laughs)
0: And, And the whole question about that heirloom tomato is, you can always find one, but people in Dean Price's neck of the woods, unless they have a grandmother who's kept the seeds, are no more going to have access to yeah. any form too, of real time because it's tomato. too expensive. Yeah.
1: Alice Waters, who I... My book has profiles of 10 famous Americans along with Dean... Following that and,
0: historical
1: right. path. Um, famous Americans from different sectors, politics, culture, business. Alice Waters, who founded the local uh, food movement in America could not understand why a kid in the Bronx would spend his money on sneakers instead of on uh, more expensive food. And there's a real class blindness, I think, to that movement. Well, the absence of teenage boys in her life for a start. Ah, (laughs) see, that would have taught her. Um, But there's also almost a fear of contamination. Uh, This is something my, my wife has has made me see that they, for example, she was once looking through a, a, a listserv of people whose children go to our children's school and someone was asking other parents a question. My child was invited over to a friend's house and they were given hot dogs. Imagine the poisons that entered his body. Should I allow this friendship to continue? And th- it's almost as if it's like not getting into the right school. If you eat the wrong food, you're going to be dragged down into the Walmart world where the white working class is sinking. And that's a weird, uh, kind of dark underside to, you know, what I think is a perfectly good food movement.
0: (laughs) Now, we have time to take some questions from you on subjects from heirloom tomatoes to, you know, a great diversity of issues. You'll see the microphones are down here at, uh, at the bottom of the stairs, so do come and join us with your question. Um, I, I, what is interesting about the, I mean, even about the discussion of hot dogs and the inflection of that interest in healthy food it, is that it, it, like many of these discussions, becomes a class issue at a time when, theoretically, we thought those discussions were something that had been left behind.
1: I mean, Americans don't like to use the word class. We, from our founding, we were supposed to be a society of individuals who could rise to the level of their ability uh, and effort. And that's, uh, that idea is animated every election, every politician who came along. In a way, Sarah Palin and Donald Trump um, put a stop to that. They don't talk that talk. There's a, it's a very dark picture of America in, in Trump's uh, view. And class has come to America with a vengeance. Social mobility, which was the American justification for our very rough form of capitalism, yes, a lot of people are left by the wayside, it's, the, the floor is very low, but you can always rise and the next generation can rise higher and if we were to start creating more of a social safety net, more welfare programs, then you would get stuck. Well, our social mobility is now below levels of many European countries. People are born into a place and they're going to die in that place and that is certainly what you feel around a guy like Dean Price. Mm. And that is such a, uh, an un-American uh, recognition and in some ways the end of what people call the American dream. So class is, it's there in everything, where you shop, what you eat, who you, how you travel, even the way you board an airplane. You know, you're either <laughs> platinum, gold, silver, or you're premium, or you're riffraff. And... <laughs> Um,
0: and, yeah, the yeah. luggage tells a story. That yeah, which store, it's yeah. just,
1: it's everywhere. And, yeah. and part of this class, this new class system, is celebrity worship. They are our aristocracy. We don't have an inherited aristocracy. We certainly have inherited wealth. Donald Trump is an example of it. But the, the royalty are the, are the celebrities. And Twitter is their, you know, their tribune. <laughs>
0: Just trying to think of the analogy that, yes, that would fit that. Yeah. From microphone number one, please.
2: Hi, thank you very much for your speech. I was reflecting on the, the elements that you've discussed and, and written about and speculating as to whether you thought that some of these things that you're observing are more the cracks that are the manifestation of the much larger or tectonic movement globally, which is in all probability going to see America's economic dominance cease. And some time after that, and that would be even more of a challenge, it's military global dominance disappear. Yeah. And are these, that's the big change, are the things that you're observing the cracks that are the manifestation of that process?
1: Yeah. uh, That's a great question and I didn't address my subject on that scale, but I think there is something to it. I think it'll be a long time before our military dominance is eclipsed, but um, certainly the will of Americans to be militarily dominant has declined since the the disasters in Iraq and Afghanistan, Uh, and our economic dominance has long since been challenged. In other words, that period from 1945 to, say, 1999... When we were either one of two superpowers or the superpower, uh, is over. Uh, there's no going back to it, and in many ways, it's a relief, <laughs> to uh, for that to be over. And I'm sure it's a relief for people in other countries. Uh, although, <laughs> although some of the you know some of the other contestants might make <laughs> the the world miss <laughs> the period of American dominance, uh, but it's not, there's no going back. And I think yes, we are seeing. Uh, psychologically as well as economically, a sense of resistance and unease with, part of Trump's power is to say, we're not, no one respects us, we're not great, we're chumps, we keep getting the raw end of deals, we enter wars we can't win, we enter trade deals that seem to benefit others, although there's a lot of uh, wrong facts there, Um, and, and I'll make it right. And that's a powerful message for people who are used to being number one. Um, I think the, a, a big test of whether we'll get through this malaise is whether we can gracefully accept that we're not going to dominate the way we used to, because that's inevitable.
0: Although I think the military spending is still three to four oh, times the it's, nearest It's
1: huge and will, China, not, yeah. will not go down for a long time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And
2: I, can I just... That gap between when America ceases to be economically dominant, but still military dominant, it maintains military dominance. Is that an even more dangerous period?
1: I mean, there's analogies throughout history, right? Especially recent history with the British Empire. I'm not Thomas Friedman. I can't talk on on that scale. I prefer to talk about Dean Price than about uh, the 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 future of the world. So I'm going to I'm going to leave it to to others.
0: Microphone number two.
2: Uh, thank you very much, George, for a great uh, talk and very interesting. Um, it seems clear that the process that you're talking about in America has, is well underway here. A lot of people may not think that, but uh, certainly the, uh, even the uh, recent election results indicate that with the decline of the large parties and the rise of the independents. How do you stop it? You said you can't uh, reverse it. I mean, you see a, a generation dying out before anything can happen. Yeah. How do you arrest the process or moderate it so it's no, not so devastating for such a large proportion of the population? Yeah.
1: And how do you avoid having your own Trump suddenly appear in a parliamentary election and maybe you've already We've got one. We've had a very interesting yeah, week I've this heard. week. <laughs>
0: I mean, that hairdo we can't rival, but in some other aspects...
1: Your laughter is reassuring, because if I have one message for you is that we're not alone. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is happening uh, all, everywhere you look. I don't know how to arrest it. All I know is we're in a place now in America where we, we just can't listen to each other. We cannot imagine the experience of someone unlike ourselves. We are so balkanized. And I really do think that social media is part of the problem because everyone chooses their, their team and doesn't have to listen to anyone who disagrees. And when a slightly dissenting view shows up on uh, a tribal Twitter uh, network, it, that person is going to be tarred and feathered and driven out of town. I mean, it's, people have lost their nerve. There's a great deal of self-censorship in the media and in politics, and there's also a great deal of, I'd say, uninformed contempt. And what I find is when you really talk to people, the, yes, their views remain disturbing, but the seeds of their views, the reason why they might arrive at a particular crazy idea becomes understandable, more understandable. And that was the privilege I had of writing this book, was to spend enough time with people that I began to think like them. Or at least began to imagine how they thought. And that's obviously not a a good answer for your question about how to arrest it. Because we're not all going to become long-form narrative journalists, thank God. Um, (laughs) But I'd say one thing to worry about and avoid is the level of uh, vitriol and mutual contempt that now exists in the United States. I don't know if it's that bad here or not, but it's really bad where I live
0: I think it's slightly less, strangely less polarised in some aspects of politics because of the differences in the political system, but certainly what you say about social media and public debate and the impact of some forms of social media and the trolling that occurs for people who step out of line is very, it's very similar. There are elements, very common, Mm -hmm. very much common elements. Thank you. Microphone number one.
2: Hi, thank you. with uh, if you take the two sort of areas which you discussed, Silicon Valley and um, rural Ohio, uh, North and, Carolina. Oh, oh, sorry, that was Carolina. Where, yeah. <laughs> um, and sort of took the social drivers out of the fact um, with two equivalent public schools. Would you say that there's a disparity between the level of education that is actually offered to to equivalent students in those areas? Utterly.
1: Yes, completely. Um, not to say the schools are completely to blame because what we find in studies, I think, about the readiness of, of children for school is they, by the age of five, um, so much has already either been prepared or been neglected that their, their chances are almost already done. We know whether they're going to succeed or not. I've seen this, sadly, in some of my son's classes. He goes to a public school in Brooklyn, and I see children who seem to be starting at the same place because they're all in the same classroom. Uh, Their chances of succeeding uh, become clearer and clearer as they move up from first grade to second to third, and a lot of it is based on what's going on at home, uh, how much they're being read to, how much they're being uh, talked to, and, um, and then there's the way we pay for our schools, which is by local property taxes so that there is not um, a national standard of spending. There's what each school district can get out of uh, homeowners. And in Silicon Valley, you can get a lot of tax money. Although, one interesting thing about Silicon Valley schools where I went to school, when I was in school, it was all paid for by tax money. And then came something called Proposition 13, the year I graduated from high school and went and left home, which cut the the tax base for schools. And the California public schools went from first to 48th in the country very quickly because suddenly there was... So what have people done in Silicon Valley? They've turned to corporations to fund the the public schools. They're these foundations of parents uh, in school districts who are getting Google money and Facebook money uh, and PayPal money and uh, whatever other big tech companies to fund their public schools. So it's a kind of privatization of public education, which further, obviously, intensifies the inequalities. In Rockingham County, North Carolina, they they don't have any... Walmart is not going to be spending a lot of money on, on public school education. So the... The extremes in schools are just as great as they are in every other aspect of life. And um, it's, uh, it, Dean once said to me, the only way to succeed here is to go away. That was his, his solution for, he, he went away for a while and then went back to try to make it as a, as a native son. But his, he was clear that you have to leave in order to have a, a chance of doing something in life.
0: We're going to take one more question from microphone two. My apologies to those but, who won't get um,
1: From what I understand, Donald Trump is not just a candidate; he represents a, a social phenomena. Now, from my understanding, also he is going to lose the next election, and Hillary Clinton will be probably uh, president of the United States. Now, my question is: given that this happens, what's going to happen to these social forces? Will they stay in the Republican Party? Will they find a new Republican Trump? Or will we'll alternatively yeah. do some sort of breakaway, some sort of fascist movement uh, or semi-fascist movement come to the fore? What's your take on yeah. that? What's your understanding? Wonderful question. Um, a few days ago in Melbourne, I said, and I, I'm afraid I was being filmed when I said it, that Hillary Clinton will win. Uh, and for some reason today in Sydney, I, I don't f- feel quite so confident of that. Um, has nothing to do with Sydney. Um, it's. Because she is now sinking to her level, her level is low. People don't much like her. A lot of people, and so for her, when when nothing is happening, gravity takes her down to a level very close to Trump, and that's where things seem to be right now. So I don't know that he's going to lose. I think he's going to lose. I've already actually placed a bet that he's going to lose. But um, if he loses, he will try to maintain his, you know, his his ubiquity, and that will fade, I think. But what he represents will not go away because of all the things that we've been talking about this morning. I think the Republican Party will have a tremendous internal battle. It's already, it's sort of being held off by the election, but one heartening thing about this race is how many Republicans have stood up and said, never Trump, and have weathered the Uh, the scorn of their fellow Republicans, and in many ways have been more incisive and more uh, clear-headed about Trump than Democrats have been, because they are close enough to the phenomenon to understand it better. And those Republicans, as I said in my talk, may well become Democrats. And they are, by and large, more, um, more cosmopolitan Republicans. They May well decide they can disagree with the Democratic Party about um, private school vouchers and abortion, and still be Democrats. And I think the Republican Party, for a while, is going to be more and more the party that is that nominated Donald Trump because that is who the voters are, and it it, that's where the voters have been. It's just that their leaders uh, were talking a different game and suddenly been exposed as having of tenuous connection to those voters. So I think it's going to be uh, an internal civil war among Republicans. But I want to end by saying Democrats, like me, should really avoid triumphalism because it's going to be ugly for us too. We're going to have our own uh, internal battles. And for Hillary Clinton to succeed as president is, is going to be almost miraculous. (laughs)
0: On that note, (laughs) George will be signing books in the foyer after this talk um, and I want to thank him so much for coming here and for speaking with us this morning, from donuts to fascism, everything in between. Um, It's been a great start to our morning session. Thank you for your questions and your participation and please join me in thanking George Packer. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.